1803, President Thomas Jefferson authorized the Louisiana Purchase. And overnight, the country of the United States doubled in size. I don't know if you've ever looked at old maps and seen how big the United States was at different points, but the Louisiana Purchase was significant in expanding the territory of the United States over to the Mississippi River. And almost immediately after he did that, Jefferson went to Congress and he asked for permission to send a survey team to try and find an overland route from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. Now, you don't know this, but you know who led that expedition. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Lewis and Clark, because you all remember your high school history class, right? Nod your head that you remember those names. Okay, good. Lewis and Clark led a 40-man team overland to the Pacific Ocean. They started in St. Louis, and it took them. It's a fascinating thing. If, uh, <laughs> if you're fascinated by history, it's fascinating. If you're bored by history, then it's probably incredibly boring. Uh, and I'll try not to bore you for more than about 30 more seconds about this, but it took them almost two years to get from St. Louis to the Pacific Ocean and back. They faced starvation, almost constant threat of Indian attack. They barely survived the winter, and of course, the most daunting challenge was to get up and over and through the Rocky Mountains. But they finally did it. And in doing so, they succeeded in blazing the trail that opened the West for development and commerce and settlement. Somebody needed to be first. Somebody needed to be a pioneer. Somebody had to have the courage and make the sacrifice to see how to get from where we were to where we needed to be. And now, if you find yourself in St. Louis someday, you can rent a car and drive to Seattle in 30 hours. What took Lewis and Clark 10 months would take you 30 hours, or you could just hop on a plane and be there in an hour. Now, we've been immersing ourselves in the book of Hebrews over the last four weeks, and we have been looking to Jesus. That's the title of our series. We've been learning about the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the creator and the ruler of all things, that he, in fact, chapter 1 tells us that he is God, and he has all power, and he is greater than all. And today, we're going to learn a couple of more things about him. We're going to see that, first of all, he is the pioneer of our salvation, and he is also our elder brother. Have you ever thought of Jesus that way? Have you ever thought of Jesus as a pioneer, you know, with a wagon load of supplies heading out across the prairie? He's not that kind of pioneer. Have you ever thought of him as an older brother? I bet that conjures up some thoughts and memories in some of your minds today if you have older brothers. We're going to see what Hebrews says here, and we're going to explore what this means for our lives because that is exactly what the writer tells us that Jesus is to us. And as we start today, I want to give you this thought to be thinking about that as our Savior and our brother, Jesus walks with us through all that we face every day. He walks with us. Now, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this morning, if you have them with you, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. 
We're going to look at verses 10 through 18. So grab your Bible, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, then the verses will be on the screen and you can follow along with us there. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, then uh, see somebody at the welcome table afterwards and we'll make sure that you get one. Uh, so that you can have one for yourself. But Hebrews chapter 10, or chapter 2 rather, verse 10, says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now we're just going to read that verse as we start here and look at it for a minute. I want you to notice right there at the beginning of the verse, it says, For... For it was fitting. For is a connecting word. That means he's connecting this thought to what we talked about last week. We're continuing this last week. And if you were here last week, you will know that we said, when we look back in the book of Genesis, we look at the very beginning of all things, that God gave us what? Everything. Remember? He gave us everything. He created this perfect world. He created things, and he looked back, and he said, that's good. Remember, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, at the end of the day, after he created the plants and the trees, he looked back, and he said, what? That's good. He created the birds and the fish and the animals, and he looked at it, and he said, that's good. And he created Adam and Eve in his own image, and he looked at them, and he placed them in the garden, and he said, this is all good, and it's all yours. That's what he said to Adam and Eve. You have dominion. This is yours. All of it is at your disposal. But what happened? We threw it away. Adam and Eve threw it away, and we would have done the same thing if we had been there. They threw it away because of their sin. And so God sent Jesus back to provide salvation for us, to give us a way to be made right with him. And I want you to notice here that Jesus is called, in the verse, he is called the founder of our salvation. Unless you think I'm just using the story of Lewis and Clark and the word pioneer is some kind of a gitchy gimmick to get your attention. This word literally means the first in a long procession. It literally means a pioneer. Just like Lewis and Clark opened up that Northwest Passage, you know what happened, right? All of you that are such students of American history, you know what happened after Lewis and Clark opened up that Northwest Passage and got through and they established this trail and they put markers and they established little communities. What happened? Hundreds and then thousands and then millions of people over the next hundred years crossed the Rocky Mountains and settled the West Coast. That's why we have the other half of our country today but they were the first. In much the same way, Jesus blazed the trail of salvation so that we could follow. You see, because of our sin, because we threw it all away in Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, all the way back at the beginning, we fell short of God's glory. 
God said, this is my standard. You can have everything you want. All of this is for you, and it will all be at your disposal. All you have to do is be obedient to me in every way. And did they do it? No, they didn't do it. They had access to every tree in the garden. You read Genesis 1 and 2 sometime. You can have all of it. Just don't touch that one tree. And what did they do? They had to have that tree. They had to have that fruit. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that way of being right with God is closed to us. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but there are actually two ways to be saved. One way to be saved is to be absolutely perfect every moment of your life for your entire life and never sin. How you doing with that one? Anybody? That way is closed to us. Because we're all sinners. And so Christ made another way to be saved. In his mercy and grace, he opened up this new way for us to find acceptance with God because we cannot be perfect. This new way is by confessing our sinfulness, by confessing our inability to save ourselves and live up to God's glory, by believing that his death was a sacrifice to us, This is the only path to salvation through the wilderness of sin. I want you to notice also in that verse it says that Jesus Christ was made perfect through his suffering. Did you notice that when we read that? He was made perfect. Now, a lot of people look at that verse and they say, see, he wasn't God. A lot of people use this verse to try and prove that Jesus was not God. He wasn't God. He couldn't have been God because he wasn't perfect. It says here, he was made perfect. Well, unfortunately, that's a misunderstanding of the word here because this word in the original language doesn't have anything to do with holiness. It doesn't have anything to do with sinlessness. It has to do with bringing something to completion. That's what it means. That Jesus brought to completion this process by his suffering and his death on the cross. What process? Well, the process that started before the beginning of time. Ephesians 1 says that before the beginning of time, God, who sees all because he is eternal, looked into time and space and saw you and knew that you would not be able to maintain perfection in this world. He knew that you would sin and that I would sin. And since before the beginning of time, God has had this plan that one day he would send Jesus Christ to this earth and Christ would be born as a baby and he would grow up and he would mature and he would become a teacher of men and he would share the truths of salvation and then he would go to the cross and he would die on the cross and then he would be buried and three days later he would rise again and become the first to be resurrected from the grave so that we could follow. And this phrase that Jesus Christ was made perfect in salvation, through his suffering rather, means that Jesus completed the purpose that God set before the world began. Every stage, 
Christ walked through that plan that he had set before the beginning of time, and now it is complete because of his suffering. I want you to notice there as well, before we leave verse 10, that it says, for it was fitting that he would do that. It's suitable. It is proper. In other words, it suits the holy and just and loving character of God that he would provide salvation for the people that he lovingly created. Just a moment ago, as we were preparing to sing that last song, Tara mentioned, she said, you know, God had every right to fold his arms and look at us with disgust. And that is so very true, my friends. And yet he chose to provide salvation for us. Look at verse 11. For he, that is Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, that is us, all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in you and in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Now, these are quotes from the book of Isaiah. You know, if you've been here already in earlier weeks of the series, there are hundreds of quotes and references to the Old Testament on the book of Hebrews. These are from Isaiah. And what he is telling us is this, that Jesus... And those of us who are Christ followers, he says, have one source. That is, that we are alike. That means that we are of the same family. And he calls us brothers. Jesus, who we have already established in these first four weeks, is God. Now we learn, became a man. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But what I want you to realize here from these three verses is that we are from the same family. That's what the Hebrews writer tells us. He is our brother. And since he went first, since he was the pioneer, he is our older brother. That's what he's telling us. Now, a quick poll. How many people have one or more older brothers? Older brothers. Okay. Well, I, in my family, I am the older brother. I have two younger brothers. And so they're not here today, and so Doug and Danny cannot tell you. But I will tell you that I was an amazing older brother, a light in their lives, an example for them to look up to, a protector and a nurturer at all times. except for the time that I punched Doug between the eyes because he made me mad and broke his glasses and um, gave him a shove and pushed him back through the window in the door and broke the glass and, uh, you know, things like that. Other than that, I did a pretty good job. Um, You may have your own stories about your older brothers. In fact, I think, Joellen, we've talked about older brothers. Uh, Joellen has an older brother we've talked about and uh, others. But Jesus, Jesus is the best of older brothers. And I want you to notice this, and and maybe if you have an older brother, you can relate to the opposite of this. What does it say? He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. 
Jesus did not go out, does not go out into life like some older brothers and say, hey, you know, don't even acknowledge my presence when we're out there. I don't want anybody to know you're my kid brother or my kid sister. Jesus is the very best of older brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his family because he loves us and he cares for us and he sacrifices for us. Because he is our brother, because we're in the family, that means that we are in the family of God. We've been adopted in. We're not naturally in because our sin has taken us out. But because of Christ's sacrifice, we are adopted back in. I want you to notice there in that first verse 11 that this family is different from physical families. You know, physical families, you have siblings. Some of you, uh, uh, even before I knew you, I could tell who your siblings were because you look a lot like them. You all have brown hair, you all have blue eyes, or you all the same height, or whatever it is, distinguishing characteristics. But I want you to know what, see what the distinguishing characteristic of this family that we're a part of is. That is holiness. The writer says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are one, made holy. This is our life, the pursuit of and progress of holiness and in holiness. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, Paul says it this way, This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification simply means your progress in holiness, becoming more like Christ. And as our older brother, Jesus leads the way into holiness. He leads us to holiness. If you follow him, if you strive to become like him, you will become more and more holy because he is holy. Now, how in the world can all of this be possible? He's God. He's creator. He's Lord of all. And we are, well, if you are here a couple of weeks ago, we are insignificant. Remember? We're nothing. Notice what verse 14 says. Since, therefore, the children, that is us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, that is us again, were subject to lifelong slavery. So we've already learned that, that Jesus is God, that he is full deity and has all power, but now we learn that Jesus Christ is fully man also. It says here that he took on a human body to destroy and deliver, to destroy the power of Satan and to deliver us from slavery to sin. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death. In Christ, we have life and we have hope. Now, often in our lives, our human nature causes us to, to use busyness to shield us from the anxiety and the anxieties and the fears of life. 
And maybe you have those times when you feel that because of what's going on around you, the pressures of your life or your family or your relationships or your finances or your health or whatever the case may be. But the writer here assures us and gives us this hope that because of Jesus, we can be free of that. Why is that possible? How is that possible? When we realize what Christ has done for us, that we have eternal life waiting for us after this life, then we can begin to look at this life as prelude to what is to come. Prelude to what is better. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4? He says, everything that is visible is temporary. It's all temporary. It's going to go away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The life that God is preparing for us in heaven is not only going to be eternal, it's not just going to be long. That's not necessarily a good thing, right? Depending on the quality. Just because it's long isn't good. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be full of his blessing and his presence. That is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, O death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? I always read those verses when I'm doing a funeral service for one who knows the Lord because you know if you've, if you've lost someone that you love, probably everyone here has lost someone that they love, that it stings. It's painful to see the body of someone you love go into the ground. But Paul says because of Christ, there's no victory. The grave doesn't have the last word. And we don't have to fear and be anxious anymore and fear death. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, that is that Christ helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, if you're, you know, dropping into the series, you don't know this, but we've talked a lot about angels the last two or three weeks, haven't we? There's, been a, there's a lot about angels in that first chapter and even refers to them again in the second chapter. And he's trying to make this contrast here. Look, angels are important. Angels are messengers of God. And in the Old Testament in particular, God used them to share his message with people. But as wonderful as angels are and as important as they are to the plan of God and what he is doing in the heavenly realms... They are nothing compared to how God feels about us as human beings. And this is what he's saying here. God doesn't do this through Jesus Christ for angels. He does it for humans. Notice what it says. He helps the offspring of Abraham. The word help literally means to resolve, to lay hold of, and what it really implies is to show initiative in stepping in. And what that tells us is this, that Jesus Christ desires to intervene in our lives. He wants to be a part of what is going on in us and what we are facing. Look at verse 17. Therefore, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because it was God's desire to save us, because it was Christ's desire to set us apart and to make us holy and deliver us from fear of death and slavery to sin, he became like us. And he experienced the things that we experience. He faced what we face. And we also see another aspect of salvation here, that Jesus' death satisfied the debt of sin that we owed to God. That's what the word propitiation means. That's just a big fancy word that means the the sacrifice or the payment for our sin. The debt had to be paid, but it was too much for us. And so Christ paid it. Christ became a human to satisfy the justice of God and his death as both God and man broke the mold and set us free. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We know what Christ did in the past. We know all about his life if we read the Gospels. We know about his death. We know about his resurrection. Next Sunday is Easter. We'll be talking about all of that. We know about that. But what is he doing right now? Well, this passage tells us that Christ came for three things. He came to destroy the power of Satan and deliver us from slavery. He came to satisfy God's justice. And now we see that he came so that he's able to help us in our life struggles. If there was ever anyone who was ideally suited to help us battle temptation and despair and grief and pain, it's Jesus Christ because he's been through it himself. That's what the scripture tells us. He was tempted in every way. We'll look in a few weeks in in Hebrews 4. And we'll see that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He knows what we're going through. Now, some people look at that and they say, well, if if Jesus is God and he can't sin, you say he went through those temptations, but how how real are those temptations? If he couldn't sin, then it's not, not a real temptation. You could put a great big pile of white chocolate truffles in front of me and that wouldn't tempt me at all because I hate white chocolate. So you say, well, that's no temptation. Let's put a big pile of milk chocolate in front of him and see what a piggy is. That's a temptation. And sometimes people say that about Christ. Well, it's not a real temptation because, because he couldn't sin. I would suggest to you that Christ knows far more about dealing with temptation than we do because he endured it far beyond the point that any of us have. Think about your life when you're in a situation and things are going sideways and you are tempted to get angry and as soon as it happens, you get angry. As soon as someone gets up in your face about something and you're tempted to say something back that you will later regret, boom, you say it. Sometimes it doesn't take very much temptation, does it, to cause us to sin. 
But Christ, who knew no sin, endured that temptation far beyond any point that any of us ever have. And we see here the lengths that Jesus went to to understand our trials and temptations so that he could help us and encourage us and strengthen us and comfort us and help us to resist temptation. We've spent the last three weeks talking about and explaining the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, have we accepted that gift of salvation? Do we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Christ is our Savior, is your Savior, that you've confessed your sin to him? You've trusted his work on the cross to save you. If so... If you're here this morning and you can say that, yes, that Christ is my Savior and he is your brother, then know this, that Jesus walks through life with you every day. Remember last week we asked this question, that most common of questions? If Jesus is so great and so loving, why is this world so messed up? If Jesus is so great and so powerful, why is my life so messed up? The answer to that is this, because the world is so full of sin. Because mankind continues to reject Jesus Christ. And that affects all of us. And because Christ knows that, and he knows that you're trying to live in the middle of a sin-cursed world every day, he walks with you through that. He is your complete Savior. He is sufficient for every need, for your salvation, and for every day since then. And my challenge to you this morning is this. When you are going through something very difficult, when you are facing temptation, when you are facing hurt and pain and suffering, when you are tempted to ask, where is God and why didn't he do something? Know this from the truth of Scripture. He is with you. And he did do something. He did far more than you could ever imagine. He is able to help. He is with you and he is for you. That's what it means to be a child of God. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. He is with you. This morning, we're going to commemorate that as we celebrate communion together. This is something that we are commanded to do in the New Testament. As a church, we're commanded to gather We're commanded to commemorate what Christ has done for us. We're going to do that with two things. And if you are familiar with communion and how it works, then uh, this is review for you. But some of you may be here this morning and have not experienced this before, or you have just trusted Christ recently and you've never done this before. But the Scripture encourages us to take bread And the bread is a symbol of Christ's body that was nailed to the cross. It's just a symbol. It's just bread. But when we eat it, 
It signifies the fact that we believe that his death was for us. And then we take the cup. And the cup is a symbol of Christ's blood. When we read in the Gospels about Christ's death, we learn that that he bled when he was beaten, when he was whipped, when the crown of thorns was forced down onto his head. His blood was shed. And all the way back in the book of Genesis, God made very clear that without the shedding of blood, sins could not be forgiven. Christ gave his precious blood for us. And so when we drink the cup, we are saying, yes, we believe that Christ's blood has been applied to our hearts and that our sin is forgiven. In his innocence, Christ walked the dusty, dirty streets like we do. He knows what it's like to live in this fallen world, and he did it for us. He did it for you, and he did it for me. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when those trays come by, go ahead and grab the bread, grab the cup, And as the band leads us in a song, I want to ask you to do a couple of things. First of all, just to quietly contemplate and give thanks for what Christ has done for you. And after you do that, go ahead and eat the bread and drink the cup with us. Father, we are so thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning, as we remember what he has done for us, that we would live in light of that and that we would in turn offer ourselves as a sacrifice of gratitude. We just pray that you will focus our minds and our hearts on Christ in these next moments and his sacrifice for us. In his name we pray, amen. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning, just right now in this moment, every person that is here would be reminded that he is not distant from us. He is here. He is with us. He is for us. Father, we ask forgiveness for all the times when we go it alone go our own way, we walk our own path, we make our own decisions, and we mess up our lives. I pray that we will be reminded as we have just sung that you are here, that the arms of Christ are open wide, and I pray that every person here would know that comfort this morning, that freedom from fear that freedom from anxiety, the strength that we need to fight against temptation to sin, to walk in the way that you have put before us. Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know that comfort, that has never trusted Christ as our Savior, I pray that today would be the day. Today's the day. Because this is the day we have. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. There may not be another opportunity So I pray that we would not quickly turn away from the truth that has been exposed to us. 
Thank you for meeting with us this morning, Father. We are so grateful to be called your children. We are so thankful that Jesus is the founder of our salvation and our older brother, the one who walks with us through life. As we go out into this community, I pray that we will do so in that knowledge and in the strength that only he can give, that we might be lights in this dark world, that others may know the truth as well. Give us the strength and the grace that only you can, Father. Meet our needs in the way that only you can for this task that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here this morning, folks. I hope you have a great week.